Welcome to Stratfor's Essential Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Fred Burton. I'm speaking today with Thomas Abihana, who is one of our global security analysts here at Stratfor. Thomas, how are you doing? Doing well, Fred. How about yourself? I've got no complaints. Let's talk a little bit about a milestone. On April the 28th, we passed the 26th anniversary of Aldridge Ames pleading guilty to espionage. Obviously, that's a significant moment in American intelligence history. Well, yeah, Fred, you're you're absolutely right. It was a, a milestone in U.S. intelligence history, and that's because Aldrich James was arguably the most damaging spy to U.S. intelligence operations in American history. He spent 31 years at the CIA. However, the last nine of those, starting in 1985, he spent passing highly classified information to, well, first the Soviets and then after the fall of the Soviet Union, in 1991 to the Russians until 1994. Uh, During his time at the agency, he ended up with a position in counterintelligence, among other positions, where he enjoyed access to some of the most highly compartmented and sensitive material on American intelligence operations against first the USSR and then later the Russians, including the identity of human sources and specific intelligence operations. Um, In exchange, the Russians paid him lavishly in sums which ended up being in the millions of dollars. The lower estimates of the amount they paid him over nine years is $2.1 million. And he ended up exposing more classified assets, assets meaning agents recruited by either the CIA or the FBI, than any other intelligence officer in history up to that point, many of whom were actually killed by the Soviets and later the Russians. Thomas, I vividly recall Ames's arrest because uh, I was an agent in Washington when it happened. And whenever you had one of those kinds of events, uh, it, it was unimaginable to us as to how someone could sell out their country. Tell me a little bit about how he was eventually caught. So he he first actually came under suspicion after the U.S. intelligence committee community rather uh, discovered his let's call it unusual spending habits. He only made about seventy thousand dollars a year. I say only in comparison to how he spent. So first he bought a five hundred and forty thousand dollar house near the agency's headquarters in Langley, Virginia which he paid for in cash. He yeah, that's called a clue. <laughs> yes, I believe that's what investigators call that. Uh, he also bought a $50,000 Jaguar. And then after he bought his house, he put almost $100,000 in home remodeling and redecoration. He had also recently, before his arrest, uh, deposited $22,000 in Italian currency not U.S. currency, Italian currency, at a bank in the U.S. And on top of all of that, whenever they began their investigation, uh, they found out he was spending nearly $30,000 a month on other expenses. So the, the only logical way that he could just sustain this kind of lifestyle was through illicit means, either through one, well, criminal activity, or in this case, espionage. He had also had historically questionable behavior, uh, including excessive drinking, 
which he had done at embassy parties and other places. Now, of course, both the FBI and CIA claim credit for cracking the case, but the, the subsequent investigation lasted over a year. And the FBI conducted searches of Ames's residence, during which they found documents and other materials linking Ames directly to the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service. And then uh, upon subsequent, let's call it uh, surveillance, he was observed uh, meeting with his Russian handler. And that was really the, the nail on the coffin. Uh, he was arrested in 1994 and was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. And he is still in prison as now we speak. Yeah, that certainly was treachery at the highest uh, order when you start looking back on that. And uh, I know we've certainly in the espionage business have lived through a lot, like even going back to uh, Philip Agee when he disclosed all the names of the CIA personnel years ago. Thomas, what lessons can be learned from this case and what does it tell us about the future of intelligence operations? So the the primary one that we can learn from this is that the legacy of the KGB, the, the Soviet intelligence service, uh, continued to live on even beyond the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Like we mentioned earlier, they began handling them in 1985 at the height of the Cold War, and they continued handling them through 1994 when the U.S. and the Russians were technically not necessarily allies, but definitely not enemies. As I know you always like to say, the, the Cold War never ended. And as we saw in this case, and later with Robert Hansen of the FBI, Russian intelligence continued to handle agents and can obtain troves of classified information even after the Cold War. And to this day, Russia continues to aggressively pursue intelligence operations against the West and primarily the U.S., and these aggressive intelligence operations can play out in a number of ways. Uh, I would say three primary ways that we're looking at. One is traditional espionage, the cases of Ames and Hansen, the attempt to spot and recruit agents in the U.S. and the Western governments in order to obtain secrets related to government policy, technical specifications, uh, intelligence operations, and a number of other things. The second one which is probably the most overlooked, is economic espionage, where they attempt to steal trade secrets, financial information, and other technology from Western countries. Historically, the Soviets and later the Russians have lagged behind the U.S. and Western countries in technology, financial information, and other things. And they have found it cheaper, honestly, and it made sense to steal these secrets rather than try to develop them themselves. Uh, a couple of examples. In 2015, we had three Russian intelligence officers who were arrested for attempting to recruit members uh, from the U.S. financial sector in order to learn uh, secrets or, I guess, inside information about the U.S. financial sector. And they also attempted to recruit those who might have had intelligence on sanctions targeting Russia for its invasion of Crimea. The, the second example is in 2018, the DOJ discovered an operation by the Russians targeting an aviation industry in the U.S. And that operation actually ran from 2013 until 2018, until they were finally arrested. 
And then finally, in 2019, Sweden actually arrested an employee of an unidentified uh, high-tech company reportedly recruited by Russian intelligence services who were trying to uh, obtain the technology the company was developing. I would say the third uh, intelligence operation is the one that gets the most headlines, and that's targeted killings. You can go all the way back to the 1930s when Joseph Stalin had Leon Trotsky killed in Mexico by an assassin using an ice pick. Going through the years, decades and decades, there are many, many examples you can use or look at of Russian intelligence services carrying out targeted killings. The most recent one, and the one that grabbed the most headlines, I would say, took place in March of 2018 in Salisbury, UK, when Sergei Skripal, a former Russian intelligence officer who had defected and was living in the UK, was poisoned using the Novichek nerve agent. Him and his daughter were both poisoned, and they actually ended up living. However, the UK blamed Russian intelligence services for this attempted killing, and there's plenty of open source information pointing to that, and they've released that. And so this led to a severe diplomatic rift between Russia, the UK, the US, and the rest of the Western countries. And we continue to see the ripple effects to this very day. So... It's in these, I would say, three ways that we see Russian intelligence operations continue to threaten the West, generate headlines for the media, and play a key part in the broader geopolitical competition. Wow. No shortage of treachery there, Thomas. Thank you. Glad to talk to you, Fred. Stratfor is a leading voice on the geopolitics of the coronavirus. You can read more about those topics by subscribing to stratfor.com slash podcast offer. That's stratfor.com slash podcast offer. I'm Fred Burton, and thanks for listening.